can just say some random stuff all the time. Like, I just have to keep, like, a running register of what my boys say because, like, I'm going to forget it, and they just say funny things. They came down. Both of them don't have a shirt on them. And Heather goes, boys, where are your shirts at? Like, you, you're not wearing a shirt. They said, we're not boys anymore. We're men. And I'm like, so your, your idea of a man is a guy that runs around without a shirt on. Whatever, How? yikes. All right, so anyway, that has absolutely nothing to do with anything. But I just thought I'd drop some, that wisdom on you. But, um, you know, I, was, uh, I read a story about a child. He asked his dad, he said, uh, how are people born? And so he said, well, Adam and Eve, they had babies, and their babies became adults, and they had more babies. And so the boy went over and he asked his mom, he asked her the same question. He said, you know, this is what dad said, you know, you know how, were, how were people born? And his mom said, well, we were monkeys, and then we evolved to become like we are now. And the child ran back to his dad and said, dad, you lied to me. And the dad says, I wasn't lying to you. Your mom was talking about her side of the family. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as we've been going through this book, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we find that Paul has been talking about life inside the family of God and about what our relationships are supposed to be like with each other. Don't you think that's an important subject about how we're supposed to treat each other inside the church family? And uh, he's been going through that. And, um, you know, unfortunately, church can be like maybe some of our families. You ever have, like, you go visit some extended family and there's some dysfunction there? You know, the, I thought it was fun. I was reading an article recently. Couples actually have a lot of fights about which side of the family has more dysfunction. I told that to my uh, Sunday school class, and instantly, everybody starts to debate it in class about whose side's more dysfunctional. And, you know, dysfunction can be a problem inside families, can it? It's even, it's destructive inside of a church. Uh, you could look through news. You can look in media. If, if you follow along with things that happen in churches, there are so many church splits that happen because people can't get along with each other. It's such a needed topic. And Paul, as he's closing out this letter, he, has the, he understands the need for healthy relationships. And so as he's closing out this chapter... He's writing to his spiritual children in the faith, and he's telling them, hey, there's three important relationships you need to be watching out for inside the church. And so the very first one that he talks about was he talked about the relationship of the church members with their leaders. How important is that for the leadership and the members of the church to be on the same page? He talks about that. Then the second one he goes to is the relationship not just of the church members with the leadership, but church members with each other. And then the last section that he goes into, and the one that we're going to be covering tonight, is this, your relationship with God. And um, all three of those relationships, if you were to break it down, you really get a good understanding of how important healthy relationships are inside the church. If you're good in those three areas, don't you think that would lead to a very productive and, and fruitful church? I mean, your relationship with leaders, your relationship with each other, your relationship with God. And I think Paul intended that because a lot of the problems that we have in churches today, aren't they relational problems? It, it falls into one of those three categories. And so Paul, uh, he's going to kind of give this last instruction to them. Well, in verses 12 and 13, I said he talks about the relationships with elders. Satan would love to create disharmony right there. 
to create fighting. Then in verses 14 and 15, he talks about your relationship with each other. As church members, your relationship with each other is that we are to be ministering to each other. You know, I think a lot of times we, we think of church as coming and sitting and listening to a message, but when you read verses 14 and 15, some of the things that Paul says is this. He says, for instance, the way you minister to people is you get ones that have gone wayward and you bring them back into line. He says that you're to encourage the ones that are worried. You, you need to hold up those that are struggling with sin. He talks about being patient with each other, not retaliating when you've been wronged. He talks about pursuing the things that are right. You know, we've become very individualistic in our society, haven't we? And Paul talks about the need for us as members to be ministering to the body. Do you recognize that it's not just the role and responsibility of pastors to minister to people in the church? Pastors are meant to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so as a church, we're to be ministering and, and helping each other through life. And Paul encouraged them in that. And now we're going to move into this section of the most important relationship inside of a church body is your relationship with God. That sounds so basic, doesn't it? You're like, that's kind of shocking that Paul would have to spend time about reminding them that First and foremost, above everything else, your relationship with God has to be the most important thing. But Paul spends a lot of time on that. For a church to thrive, the individual members must have a healthy relationship with God. I was reading a book recently, and it kind of caught my attention. And I want to read this, this quote to you by a pastor. This guy had been, had been a pastor for 40 years. This is what he said. I'm convinced that the greatest challenge the church faces today is not the decline in the culture outside the church, but the discouragement, the disengagement, the dispassion in the, within the walls of the church. Man, that's such an indictment on the church, isn't it? That he says it's not really so much the problem of, of what's happening within society and our culture as much as is what is happening with the believers that have become disengaged that have become uh, divided as, and they haven't been as, as close to God in their relationship. He, he, and he went on to say the reason why was that he believes that uh, as our culture, we've experienced an unprecedented amount of blessing and material wealth. He, he stated this fact. In the Wall Street Journal, the average net worth of a person in America in 2010 was $182,000. He said, when you go forward into 2014, the average net worth of an American is now was $301,000. And what he went on to say was this, as our material possessions have increased, our spiritual appetite for Christ seems to have decreased. I don't know that that's 100%, you know, it's possible. But I would just say this is that his point was this is that he's found that in a lot of churches among a lot of people that would call themselves Bible believing, uh, you know, Christians, that their love, their first love has grown, grown cold. A lot of people have gotten indifferent in their relationship with Christ. Would you agree with that? And so it's understood that Paul, as he moves into this section, he begins with the passion for God within the walls of the church. And, uh, and the point is this, is that us as a church, we will never be uh, passionate for God like we should be 
unless the individual members uh, inside the church are fired up in their relationship with God. That's what Paul's pointing to. So Paul, in this last section, he identifies three areas. It almost becomes like a diagnostic for our church. Have you ever had, had something get broken before and you had to run a check on it to see what went wrong? Maybe it was a car or maybe, I was thinking about a couple months ago. Uh, I, I'm, you ever do stuff and you're just like, man, that was so stupid. I was uh, taking a class in seminary and it was my Monday, my day off, and I'm drinking my coffee and I'm just taking my my class, looking through a video, and all of a sudden, I start choking on my coffee. And I mean, I'm like, and I just spit it all over my computer. Why did you not turn your head to the left just a little bit? And I, I mean, I'm just like coughing all over. It goes all over my computer, and I, I'm not happy about it. I take it to the computer shop. They do a diagnostic. They're running through, looking through all the different parts of the computer, and they said, yeah, there's no saving it. It's totally destroyed. Well, I believe that what Paul does in this passage is it's like he does a diagnostic check on the church and their spiritual condition and their relationship with God. And he points out three specific areas. And I think it's so important for all of us. How important is it for us to know exactly where we are, spiritually speaking, so that we can make changes where it needs to, where it needs to be made? And so he points out three areas. The three areas are this, in your attitudes, in your response to God, and then lastly, in your own spiritual growth and maturity. Paul runs a diagnostic of these three areas because they reflect a, what your relationship with God is like. So let's look at these together tonight. First of all, how are your attitudes? The passage, he, this passage, verse, verse 16 uh, and, and on uh, through verse 18, we see that it's often been called to as the standing orders to the Christian living. The reason why it's called that is because it applies to every believer in every situation, no matter who you are. And so Paul gives these orders, and all three of these commands, by the way, are in the continuous form, meaning you could add the word continually be this to all three commands. Okay, so let's look at these together. These attitudes are meant to be reflections of what your relationship is like with God. It, it's meant to be reflect whether you're trusting God and whether you're resting in your relationship with God. The first one is this. Are you joyful? Look at verse 16. He says, rejoice evermore. Man, isn't that hard? You, do you look at that and you're just like, man. Because rejoice is like, it's like, a, it's the verb form of the word joy, okay? So he's saying like, you need to be joyful continuously. Anybody else struggle with that? Like uh, joyful, really? Paul, you want us to continually be characterized, our life as believers should be characterized by joy? You ever meet people at church when you're shaking hands? Seems like every week, pastor's like, smile, put a smile on your face. Why is that? So many people walk around and you just look like, like you lost your, your favorite pet. Right? Like, it's like uh, we look around and people can be gloomy. People can be down. I mean, people wear their emotions on their sleeves and, and people look like, it's just like, and Paul says, hey, rejoice evermore. He means continuously be joyful at all points. And you're like, well, what, what does Paul even mean by be joyful? Like, what does that even look like? Well, I think it's a really important subject. Notice also, let me tell you this, it's a command. It's not an option. When Paul says, be continuously be joyful, 
He's, he's not saying uh, if you feel like it. He, he means all the time, be joyful. Amen. Well, what does biblical joy look like? Well, it, it's not happiness. Let's go ahead and put that down. Happiness, it, it, it comes from the word happenstance, okay? Happiness depends on what happens to you. Joy does not. Joy, biblically speaking, is always rooted in a relationship with Christ. And when it's rooted in Christ, that means that it's rooted in something that doesn't change according to your circumstances. You see, the reason why you don't want happiness is happiness is based on what happens to you today. And that could be really bad. Right, like for some of you, it could be, re- no, I'm just joking. It could be really bad, no. But the point is this, is that it, it depends on your happenings. And happenings, it's like a roller coaster. Some days it's good, some days it's bad. But Paul's point is this, is that Christian joy flows from what a believer knows to be true about God. It flows from a person that, that has a, a, a rooted relationship in Jesus Christ that doesn't change. As a matter of fact, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, is joy. So when he says rejoice evermore, you could actually interpret it this way. At all times be rejoicing. You ever found that difficult? Be joyful despite what your circumstances are like? Um, We can have that as you walk with Jesus Christ and as you have a relationship with him. Joy, let me just kind of give you a working definition. It's a supernatural delight meaning that it's something that comes from God. It's not something you can tell your, it's not meant for you to say, oh, today I'm gonna be joyful. You don't wake up and say that. It's not something you can produce as much as you would like for it to be. It's a supernatural thing. It's something that comes from God. It's a supernatural delight in the person of God and the purposes of God. The reason why you can be joyful in any circumstance is because you have a relationship with him. It comes from him. He's the one that gives it to you. And you can have it because at all times God's working out his purposes. And by the way, you read later on and you find out all those purposes are meant for your what? For your good. If Those that are called by God and love him, it's ultimately going to work out for your good. So you can have joy every situation because why? Well, because... It comes from him, you have a relationship with him, and ultimately all purposes are God's sovereign, and you know that he's ultimately working out his plans. That's good news, is that, man, joy is so much better than happiness. How many of you have been guilty of riding the happiness, you know, roller coaster, up and down? Today's a good day, today's a bad day. Judson's been saying recently, uh, he says it like uh, almost at every meal. He says, raise your hand if you've had a good day. You know, he's just like, you're like okay, whatever. <laughs> like, what are you saying? <laughs> it's, uh, guys, listen, folks, one of the greatest things that you have as a resource as a believer is you have joy that's rooted in God himself. His purposes always work out according to his plans. And not only that, but it's something that you have as you live your life connected to him. One of the things that I love is as you look through scripture, it doesn't mean that no event should or circumstance can change your joy because it's rooted in him. Amen. It can't be diminished, diminished because it's rooted in the very ca- uh, character of God. One of the things I love is that when you look at scripture, you find people that have a supernatural joy. Let me illustrate this for you because I think it'll be helpful for us tonight. When you look in Acts chapter 16, 
verse 25, you find that Paul and Silas were at the city of Philippi. You remember that? As they went there and they began to minister and began to share the message of Jesus Christ, they ended up being arrested, put in jail. You remember that? And you remember when they were beaten and thrown inside the jail? You remember what they did? The Bible says that they were they had joy and they began to pray and sing songs to God, so much so that the other prisoners began to listen to them. What was that? Joy. And you're just sitting there thinking, how in the world can you have joy? You just got beaten for sharing the gospel, thrown into jail, and the reason why they could have joy is that you can throw us into prison, but God's purposes are still going forward. And we can still have a relationship with God. We can sing even in the middle of a jail cell and be connected in our relationship with God. It's a supernatural joy that comes from God. You look further on and you see in Philippians 4, Paul writes, uh, he's in jail, by the way. In Philippians 4, 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And what does he say? And if you didn't hear me the first time, what? Again, I say rejoice. He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. He said rejoice, what? In the Lord. David said in Psalm 16, verse 11, he says, thou will show me the path of life. And he says, in your presence is what? Fullness of joy. At your right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. Why joy? Because it doesn't matter whether you're in a prison It doesn't matter what your circumstances look like. God's always at work, and you always are connected to him in a relationship no matter what it is that you're going through. Let me see if I can kind of illustrate it for you a little bit more. This week, I was really challenged. Uh, A friend of mine that went to school with Dwayne and I and some others, his wife has cancer, and he's been having to take her down to to get chemotherapy treatments, you know, every week. And he was talking and he was saying the fact that, you know, he was just really upset with some circumstances in his church. Just really, it's been a, a hard month for them. And he talked about the fact that he was, he went with his wife to go to the treatments. And he was there and he was working on a message and he noticed that his wife was sitting in the chair and she was going through the treatments and, and she had her Bible out and she was just reading and she had, she was just, Tears were coming down her face because God was speaking to her through the word. And he said, you know, I was reminded of the fact that she had a supernatural joy. As she was reading the word of God, God's presence was still with her. Were the circumstances great? No, they were terrible. But she had this overwhelming sense that God was in control and that God's presence was even with her, even when things were the most difficult. She had this sense that God's presence was with her. And folks, that's the kind of joy that we have as believers. And you see, that's a life that reflects a close-knit relationship with God that, that shows that my relationship, things are good. And you have that joy that passes all understanding. I mean, you have this, all this good stuff that God's working into your life. So the first one, how's your joy? How's your joy? Is it wavering? The next thing that he moves into is he moves into the prayer life. Look at verse 17. He says this, pray. Now, this is difficult. I I read this and I think, oh, man. You read passages and you're like, God, did you have to put it that way? He says, verse 17, pray without ceasing. Now, why is it that Paul's talking to this church and he says, you guys need to be praying without ceasing? 
Because the attitude of prayer is this. It's the life that says what? Uh, I need you, God. It's the life that says, that recognizes the dependency on God, the need for him, and the fact that we're insufficient of ourselves to live the life that he's called us to live. And Paul says, pray without ceasing. This word pray is just the common word. It can talk about, it can be about submission, petition, intercession, all of those. But uh, what does he mean by that? Does he mean he wants us to lock ourselves up in a room 24-7? Is there anybody here that really does that? Say, no, I don't think so. He doesn't mean that you're supposed to lock yourself up. When he says pray without ceasing, it's the idea of something that's constant. It doesn't mean like 24-7, but it, it means it's a life that's marked with a consistent attitude of prayer. It's like a running conversation. As a matter of fact, this word, uh, when he says without ceasing, it's the idea of a hacking cough. Anybody ever had a hacking cough before? Like every Sunday there's somebody, I'm just joking. All right, and so um, a hacking cough. Okay, the other night on Thursday night, my wife found out what a hacking cough was like because, man, I'm sitting there. And how many of you have, have problems with allergies? You ever? Oh, my goodness. It, it just seems every year. And so I'm there, and my throat gets scratchy right in the middle of the night. It don't, it's always the worst timing. And it, it, you have that scratch deep in the back of your throat. And, and you know, um, in the middle of the night, I'm, I'm not always fully alert. I'm just going to be honest with you. And I start coughing. And I, and, and I didn't even recognize which side of the bed I was facing, just for my defense, okay? So we're clear. And, and I'm coughing, and Heather's hair's like going, whoosh, you know, and, um, and, and I'm sure there's some spit, maybe some other stuff, who knows? And, and she's looking at me, and I'm like, it's like every few minutes, I can't keep, I, and she like finally, and, and, and you know, rightfully so, I'm giving her credit, all right? She says, Really? And, and, and the deal was, is why was it so annoying? Why does she thinking of ways that she could murder me right there? Well, the reason why is because, why? It, it was perpetual. Like, if you say you're coughing all the time, it doesn't mean literally every second. It means that it's consistent. It's persistent. And folks, when Paul says, pray without ceasing, what does he mean? Let it be a regular habit throughout the day that is persistent it's something that you're continually doing, that God is constantly on your mind. You're constantly communing with him. It's a running conversation. You know, I think it's interesting because in the, in the early church, they had this down. I, uh, in our Sunday school class, we've been going through the book of Acts. One of the interesting things that you could do is to go through the book of Acts and look at how many times it mentions that they're praying. Acts 1.14, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42, it says they gave themselves regularly to prayer. Acts 6.4, the apostles devoted themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Acts 12, prayer got Peter released from prison. I could keep going through this, by the way. We'll just stop right there. But I'll just, folks, why was it in the book of Acts we see God moving out and changing people's lives? The church is turning the world upside down. And I believe that really what, the, what was the key was that they had a, a, an unbelievable sense that in order to see God move, they needed to be communicating with God on a regular basis. You know, do you ever get frustrated with what you see in culture and, and where you see the direction of things? 
and we would be more tempted to complain about it than we are to pray about it. And Paul says, pray without ceasing. The one, uh, I read an, uh, a quote recently, it says this. Praying is what confirms our true belief that we cannot succeed without God. And its absence confirms the exact opposite. Wow, that's a powerful word. What he means by that is praying means that, that you believe you can't succeed without God. But when you choose not to pray, that means you think that you're okay without it and apart from him. Prayer is a good test for your spiritual life. I, I, I've noticed that personally in my own walk. I've found that the times where my spiritual life is growing the most is the times when I've been communing, communing with God and communicating with him consistently. Whenever in my spiritual life prayers dropped off, I've found that my relationship isn't as fired up as it used to be. And folks, prayer, how important is that in the Christian life? Martin Luther made this statement. He said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Just as the business of a tailor is making clothes, the business of a cobbler is making shoes, so is the business of a Christian praying because prayer is a part of the indispensable part of the Christian life that we can't do without, but yet it is oftentimes the most neglected area of our Christian living. It is a, a tool that accesses the resources of God. Amen? And how important is that? And the focus in what Paul is saying, pray without ceasing. And, and, and in essence, he's telling his spiritual children, don't forget about the resources that you have at your disposal. God, you can pray to him at any moment, and God can act on your behalf. How many of us wouldn't even be here if, if it wasn't for prayer? How much uh, things that we, we wouldn't have gotten through if we didn't have prayer at our disposal? It says pray without ceasing. What a great attitude, an attitude of dependence on God. Now, the next thing that he mentions is, are you thankful? Are you constantly thankful? Look at what he says in verse 18. In everything, man, I wish it didn't say that. You ever, I know I, we, I didn't write the Bible. All right, verse 18, it says, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's not my first response. You ever have something happen to you? Like you get a ticket, and not that I've, it hasn't happened in a long time, but like you get a ticket and your first response isn't, thank you, Lord. You, but we'd know, if you're, you're weird if you respond that way too, by the way. All right? But he says, we would, we would have no problem if the text said, rejoice sometimes and pray occasionally and give thanks when you feel like it. How many of you are tempted to complain? to focus on the negative things. Paul doesn't say, give thanks for everything. Notice that he doesn't say that. Notice he says, in everything, give thanks. Big difference. There's always something that you can be thankful for. It's a matter of perspective. It's so easy to overlook our blessings in life, isn't it? We focus on all the negative things and we forget about all the positive things that God has done for us in our life and we're not thankful. Well, thankfulness should be an, like an average thing for the regular believer, right? God has given us so many spiritual blessings that we overlook on a daily basis. Romans 8.28 says this, we know that God causes all things, notice what he says, to work together 
for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We can be thankful, not necessarily for the circumstances, because that would be a little strange. But he says you can be thankful because everything works together for good. Not necessarily, but for maybe the results of what comes from it, right? And see, it's the belief that God's sovereign, that God is piecing things together, that God is maybe even working behind the scenes in a way that we don't even recognize that he's working. That should be what the believer believes, right? That God's working all of it together for our good. Amen. Now, how many of you like to bake? Now, I know this is weird. You look at me and you think, Ryan, you have to bake. I don't bake, uh, by the way. All right, just because I'm big doesn't mean you bake. All right, but here's the thing. Uh, baking, uh, I, I've never done this before, but if you take like flour and you just eat it by itself, how does that taste? <clears throat> like, why would you do that? That's awful. All right, but in baking, like when you take in all the ingredients and you're piecing it together and you're putting all the stuff together and you put it in the oven and when it comes out, how does it come out? Incredible, right? It's, a, like, it's a, a, a fantastic. The point is this, is that uh, the individual ingredients by themselves aren't good. But man, you put it together and it, and it turns out good. Hey folks, that's what it means is that we can always be thankful because God's piecing things together and God's working it out. And, and, and in the end, we'll look back on it and we'll see that God had a plan behind it that we didn't even understand. But notice what he says in verse 18. And this is where it's difficult. Notice he says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. How many of you have ever wondered what God's will was for your life? You know, it's such a strange thing that we, we're always running around. I wonder what God wants me to do. I wonder what his will is for my life. I wonder what direction he wants me to take. Well, how about we start off with the things in Scripture where he says, this is God's will for you. It's interesting because this, this statement is actually connected to all three of those commands. He's saying God's will for you is that you would be joyful. Not happy, Joyful. His will for you is that you would constantly be in prayer and talking with him. God's will for you is, is that you would continuously be thankful in everything. That's his will for you. Why? Because that's what's best for you as a believer. And guys, God's resourcing this. That's what's incredible is that it flows from a person that has a correct perspective about God and is walking with him, in relationship with him, in step with him, and God is resourcing this for your Christian life. Isn't that incredible? Amen. Now, we move to the second area, and we gotta move quickly. The second thing is not just, you know, how are your attitudes? That's just one part of it. The second area is this, how are your responses <clears throat> to God? How are your responses to God? He moves into the area of two different things. Paul is going to talk to the church specifically about two things, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And he wants them to understand how the Holy Spirit works and how the Word of God works in your life. And notice that the thing that's important is this, is that they're all both things that God used in order to speak into your life. But he can't speak to you and he can't move in your life unless you're responsive to it, right? 
And so now notice what he does. Let's look at the first thing. First of all, your response to the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, he says, quench not the Spirit. Notice the Spirit there is a big S, okay? It's referring to the Holy Spirit. Uh, How important is the the Holy Spirit to living out the Christian life? Well, it's absolutely vital. You see, when you were saved, God, uh, by the Holy Spirit, he regenerates you. Uh, He places us in the body of Christ. He takes up permanent residence in your life. And then he begins to, he, he, he gives you spiritual gifts for service. He, he seals you for eternity. And he begins the process where he's working to transform you. You following me? Now, where, uh, in, in living out the Christian life, Paul wanted the Thessalonian believers not to do what? Don't quench the Holy Spirit. So what does he mean by that? Well, this word quench, it means this to extinguish or to stifle. How many of you guys, you you grew up maybe going camping before? You ever done that? Man, I can remember like we'd go camping or you go do something with some friends and you just get a fire going and somebody comes and what do they do? They throw water, throw dirt on the fire. You're like, are you kidding me? Like we just, it took us forever to get this thing going. And they take it and they throw throw and knock the the fire out. They, They quench the fire. It's interesting in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is always compared to a fire. You look in Acts 2, they had the cloven tongues of fire. You remember that were over their heads when the Holy Spirit came down? Uh, uh, We could point out several things, but the point is this. Paul's talking to them about the role of the Holy Spirit in their life. And the fact is, is that God moves in your life through the Holy Spirit directing you. And so what does he mean by don't quench the Spirit? Well, let's look at the role and what the Holy Spirit does in your life and what that means. For instance, one thing we know is the Holy Spirit illuminates the Word of God. It helps you to understand. How many of you recognize when you read your Bible, the Holy Spirit is helping you to understand the things you read? Well, what would it look like to quench the Holy Spirit when you read the Bible? Well, it could look like this. You know the Word of God is teaching you to live this way, but you choose to do what? Not live out what, what the word of God, you know it teaches. And so what do you do? That, that means you are quenching the spirit. Uh, it, it could be like uh, in, the, in the life of a believer, the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. How many of you uh, have ever said something really stupid to somebody and you're like, man, I really shouldn't have said that. Everybody's hands should be raised right now. All right, and so anyway, uh, you, you say something to somebody and you're like, man, I really shouldn't have said that. And the Holy Spirit begins to convict you And you know that the Holy Spirit wants you to go and make things right with that person. But you choose not to do it. You are doing what? You're quenching the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is moving and directing you in a certain way, and and you downplay it. You quench it. You stifle what the Holy Spirit is moving in you to do. How many of you recognize that's so dangerous in the Christian life? When the Holy Spirit begins to work on your heart about a certain area of your life that needs to be changed. And you say, ah, I'll wait till next week maybe. And and Paul's saying, don't quench the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is what's going to move and direct you in your life into spiritual growth. We're intended to live life in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, to live our life in tandem with the Holy Spirit. We have to be careful And we have to be responsive to the Holy Spirit, don't we? 
me see if I can illustrate that. Um, the Bible continually tells us to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> that means that when the Holy Spirit moves in a direction, then you listen, you, you, you're responsive to it. You know, uh, in my life, my wife and I, we have a special relationship. And, and the thing is, is that there'll be times where my wife will call me, okay? And would it be very healthy in our relationship if I sent my wife to voicemail all the time? You're like, man, Ryan, that would be really stupid. Like, everybody knows in a marriage relationship, you don't forward your wife to voicemail, even though sometimes they don't answer your phone, right, guys? Right? No, I'm just joking. All right, and so here's the thing is that, okay, so they call you and you forward them to voicemail. That's not good because why? We, we have a special relationship. We're committed to each other. We love each other. And because we have that special relationship, that means I'm responsive to what my wife might need. You following me? And, and just like that in the Christian life, you have a, a commitment to, to Jesus Christ. And you have a, a love for him. And so when the Holy Spirit begins to relate to you what God's will is for your life and directing you, if you're unresponsive to it and, and you quench it, that's not good for your relationship. You guys following me? And so Paul says, don't quench the Holy Spirit because that's important to your Christian life. And folks, we need that today. How many times does God begin to move in our hearts in a service, even like today, where we were told that, that, that Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to minister to others? Okay, well, what did he work on your heart about? How can I be responsive and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to me to live out those truths in my life? Amen? Because when you quench the Holy Spirit, hey, that's a bad thing for your life. And we have a special relationship with him that we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us and move us. We're responsive to it because we have a love relationship with God. Now, the, not only does he talk about the Holy Spirit, but he also talks about the word of God. Look at verse 20. He says, despise not prophesying. He says, this word despise means to consider as nothing. Consider as nothing. Or to look down on something. This word prophesying, uh, just so we kind of have a working understanding, it could have a reference to the written word of God, or it could have the idea of somebody, prophesying can be when somebody's standing up and teaching or preaching the word of God. He's saying, don't look down on the written word of God, and when somebody stands up and preaches or teaches the word of God, we ought to be, allow it to have authority in our life, right? You know, as a parent, one of, uh, this is a pet peeve of mine. I think it's because of how I was raised. When I walk into my kid's room, and if they're looking at their Kindle or electronics, and I'm trying to talk to them, like, I totally expect for them to do what? Look at me. Put that thing down and look at me. Uh, is that unreasonable? I, I, hopefully I'm not. Weird parent moment. Okay, I'm sharing it with y'all. But the, the fact is, is that, hey, I expect them to be responsive to me. Why? Because I'm their authority that God's put over them. And folks, just like that, as the word of God is preached and taught and as you read it from the word of God, the word of God is meant to be what? The authority in your life. And so you don't despise it. You don't look down on it. You, you treat it with respect as, a, as authority in your life for the way that you live out your Christian life, right? 
And so 2 Peter 1.20 says this, knowing this, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but how did it come to us? By, by, uh, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The word of God is meant to be something that you're responsive to because it didn't come from men. It came from who? It came from God. That's why I'm thankful we, we're in a church that preaches and teaches the word of God. Amen. That's the thing that's authoritative in the church, not a person's opinion. And so he, he starts to lay this out, allow the word of God to be something you're responsive to. Now, here's the problem they had in the time of, uh, of the Thessalonians. is The problem was is the canon of scripture wasn't complete yet. All 27 books of the New Testament were not finished, okay? So the question for the believers at Thessalonica were this. How do we know when somebody's preaching or teaching or reading the word of God, how do we know that what they're saying is truth? And Paul begins to lay out for them how they can discern that. Look at what he says next in verse 21. He says, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. This word prove all things, it's the idea, examine, test it, allow it to be proved, scrutinize it for its authenticity. It was like what they used to do with metals to see whether how valuable it was. And Paul says, hey, when somebody comes in and preaches and teaches God's word, what should you do? You should prove it, test it, see if it's re really God's word. And notice what he says, hold fast to the things which are good. That means when you test it and it's proven that it's something that comes from God, what do you do? You cling to it. You hold to it as truth from God. And he also talks about the reverse. Look at verse 22. He says, abstain from all appearance of evil. That means keep yourself away from anything that appears evil or would result in an evil action. What he means is, is that if you hold up to what the person is teaching or preaching and, and it doesn't match up with the authority of God's word, you need to abstain and hold yourself from that. Hey, folks, when you look at preaching on TV today, you can't believe what everybody says. He says that you ought to be like the Bereans that did what? They searched the scriptures to see whether it was true or not. And so what does he mean by all of this? He's saying, allow the word of God to be your authority in your life. Hey, folks, that's why we're here. Amen? Amen. The word of God is meant to be an authority in our life. We allow it to call what's in and what's out, what's true and what's false. We allow the Holy Spirit to lead and direct us so that we're responsive to it, both to the word of God and to the Holy Spirit that's working in in our lives. Amen? Amen. Now, the thing that's interesting, I was reading a funny story about President Roosevelt. He was a charismatic man, but it was said that President Roosevelt hated these receiving lines that would come through the White House because he said nobody paid attention to anything he said. He said people would come by and greet me and they're just saying their own thing. So he decided one day he was gonna do a little test with them. So as people came through the line and he was greeting them, he decided as he would shake their hands, he would whisper to them, I murdered my grandmother last night. And people would come through and they would shake his hand and I murdered my grandmother last night. And people would respond, Marvelous, keep up the good work. And people would just say, oh, oh, that's, you know, we're proud of you. Way to go, good job. God bless you, sir. He said people, like nobody listened to anything he said. Until the end of the line, there was an ambassador from Bolivia that leaned over and he said, she probably deserved it. 
And you know, I was thinking about that. How tuned in to, to God's word are you? How responsive are you to the Holy Spirit when he directs you and moves in your heart? You know, I've found so many times that God wants to do so much more in our lives, but he just can't do it because we're not responsive. You know, as a church, our heartbeat and our passion should be this. As the Holy Spirit moves me and directs me, I want to be obedient to anything he tells me. As the word of God is preached and it's taught, God, you can do any work in any area of my life you want to. Because it's the authority. You see, the, the question of spiritual growth is always this. It's not, does God want to do anything in my life? The question is always, how willing am I God for to do, God to do in, how willing am I to allow God to do something in my life? Amen. Folks, it's never a question of whether he wants to. He wants to. Amen. But how responsive are you to the Holy Spirit and to the word of God? Hey, folks, we as a church will only go as far as that. And lastly, let's look at this last area. How is your spiritual growth? And we'll finish this very quickly. Notice what he says. Paul's going to be teaching them about the only source. Hey, maybe some of the things I said to you tonight, maybe it discouraged you. And you said, man, Ryan, I'm not doing very good tonight. I don't have joy. I don't have the good attitudes. I'm not very responsive. Well, let me encourage you a little bit tonight as we close, okay? Would it be good to leave home encouraged a little bit? All right, look at what he says. Verse 23. It says this, and the very God of peace sanctify you. Holy. Can I just start by telling you this? This is Paul's prayer for the church. And notice what he says. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Sanctify means to set apart. To set apart from sin so that you can become like Christ. That's what sanctify means. And, and, and folks, when he says this, notice that he says, may the God of peace sanctify you. What? Not partially. Hey, folks, I love how Paul writes. He says, not partially. May the very God of peace, may he sanctify you what? Holy, every single part, thoroughly. That's what he means. He says, not just in some areas, but in any area. Positionally, folks, you're righteous already. But practically speaking, you and I, we have so much more that we could be doing. Practically speaking, we're not living up to everything that we should be, amen? But the fact of the matter is, is look at what he says, and may the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. He's emphasizing God's part in your sanctification. Hey, folks, how committed is God to you becoming like Jesus Christ? He's, he's all in. And his prayer is this, that God, would you carry that out in their life? Would you sanctify them in every area? He's saying he's emphasizing God's part. Notice he says, the very God of peace. God doesn't delegate out your sanctification. He's the one that's working in and of your life. The very God, that means he himself is the one that's doing it. Man, that is great. Because if it's dependent upon me, we got some really bad news, right? But there's other areas. You have Colossians 1 where he emphasizes that Paul says in Colossians 1, look down at verse 29. I'll just read verse 29. He says, Whereunto I also labor, labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. He's emphasizing both roles. There's a, one part of your sanctification that requires you to labor, 
but he says, I labor according to his working in me. It's both. And that's what Paul's talking about. Now, I want you to notice, look down at verse 23. His purpose in your sanctification is what? Why is it that he wants to perfect you and make you like Christ? Notice what he says in verse 23. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. His goal is that you would be preserved blameless. That all of you, your whole spirit and your soul and your body, what does he mean by that? Let me just try to make it very easy. He's saying that God's prayer, he says God desires this in your life. Both your, your, your immaterial part of you, your soul and your spirit, and also your physical being, that it would be completely sanctified, set apart from sin so that you can become like Christ. You know, maybe uh, I'm always, I always think it's funny. Like my boys, they fight over Legos. My kids have thousands of Legos. And the thing that's funny is, okay, Branson owns like 90% of them, okay? They were his Christmas presents. And I always have to tell Branson, Branson, man, you need to share those Legos. You know what he'll do? He'll take one Lego, like one Lego guy, and he'll give it to Judson as if that's enough. And you know what I've found in our Christian living? When God calls on us for our sanctification and making us like Christ, we'll give God one part of us and act like that's enough. Hey, folks, God, God wants to thoroughly make you like Jesus Christ, not just part of you, all of you. That's the goal. And, 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 and I know that's difficult, but look at why he says in verse 23, why? That you would be preserved blameless until the coming of Jesus Christ. That word blameless is a great word. You should circle that. It's the idea that your witness and your testimony would be intact. That if somebody was going to say anything about you, it wouldn't stick because your life has been so clean and so pure. You see, his goal, Paul says, I want you to become like Jesus Christ because of your testimony to other people. How important is that for us as a church? He says so that when people see your life and they begin to hurl accusations about you, uh, against you, it won't stick because people know how you live. Now, I found this very interesting this week. I learned something. Archaeologists have uncovered in the city of Thessalonica the graves of Christians. You know what they found? On the tombstones of some of those believers, you know what word they found on the, on the tombstones? Blameless. They found the word blameless written on their tombstone. What do you think they meant by that? I think it was meant to be an encouragement. These people lived their life, their testimony before other people, so clean and so pure. Their life was wholly set apart for God, that their witness and their testimony in front of other people glorified Jesus Christ, blameless. But I want, you want to know what else? It's not because of them. Because if you look at the next verse, look down at verse 24. And this is the last part and we'll be done. Verse 24, he says, it's not because of their faithfulness. Look at what verse 24 says. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. What a great verse. You ought to circle and highlight that verse. God's the one that's faithful. He's the one that called you. But notice it says, who also will do it. It's not talking about you will do it. It's talking about he's the one that does it. He not only is the one that called you, 
He's also the one that's going to do it. Hey, folks, God wants to see Christ formed in your life so much so that he calls you and he also is going to be the one that's going to perform it in you. Why? Because he's the faithful one. I lo- it reminds me of Philippians 1.6. It says, being confident of this very thing, that he that has begun a good work in you, he'll be faithful to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Hey, folks, everything he started for you at salvation, he's also going to complete for you in sanctification until one day Jesus Christ comes back and you're glorified and you're totally set apart from sin. Amen. Man, that is great news. Now, Paul concludes this in verse, look at these and we'll close it quickly. Verse 25, he says, brethren, pray for us. Paul says, don't forget to pray for us like we've prayed for you. Man, how good is that? He says, we've been praying for you, pray for us also. Verse 26, greet us all, all the brethren with a holy kiss. This is teenagers' favorite verse. All right, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying this is your way to show love to them. It would be like today, like greeting somebody with a handshake. He says, let them know that we love them. Look at verse 27. He says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. What does he mean? This word charge is the man. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm charging you. I'm, I'm causing you to, to make a pledge that you'll take this, this letter and you'll read it to all the brethren so that they'll be held accountable for it. And in verse 28, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You see, I love how he always closes with grace. Did you know that the whole Christian life is marked out by God's grace? See, uh, a church will never go as far as we should be as a church until our passion for Jesus Christ as individuals is everything that it should be. You know, and I'll close with this. I, I read a story about Apollo 11. You know, Apollo 11, a lot of times we focus on the people that were the main people, but there was a lot of people that were behind the, behind the scenes that nobody ever recognized or realized was a part of it. They had thousands of seamstresses that pieced together the astronaut suits. They had people from MIT that were working on the systems to bring it all together. They had uh, a people that worked on computer codes so that they would be able to come back. They had 500 different people that contributed to the design of the astronaut's spacesuit. It's said that in total they had 400,000 contributions in order for them to be able to go to the moon. 400,000 people people that they would never even recognize, people they didn't even know the names of it. And the whole point was this, is that they could have never gone as far if everybody didn't fulfill their role. And folks, inside the church, the role of all of us is to have healthy relationships, not with just with church leaders, but to be ministering to each other. And another role that's overlooked oftentimes in the church is what? Just your regular walk with Jesus Christ. Folks, we can never go as far as a church as we should be unless there's people behind the scenes in the church having a regular walk with Jesus Christ. Folks, Jesus Christ is committed to it. Not only did he call you, he's also going to perform it. Let's pray. Lord, we're just grateful for this evening to get into your word. Lord, may this be our heart's desire.